Welcome to all who have ears from the heart to hear this message, who are thirsty for reality, which only can satisfy. This is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. For those that are new, I just briefly want to let you know that what I'm about to share, I seek to share by allowing the Spirit of God to rise up and speak through me. The early church was commanded by the Apostle Peter through the Holy Spirit. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. We are to seek to allow God to speak through us by his Spirit. Really, our own words avail to nothing. Christ said, the words that I speak unto you are spirit and life. So what I do is I cast lots before God to have an equal chance on any particular chapter in the Bible. And then for a half an hour, I meditate on that chapter and make some brief notes within that half hour. And then immediately after, I share the message with you. The casting of lots is something that was practiced throughout history from the very beginning. We see this mentioned in various verses in the, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we know that God is omnipresent, omniscient. His presence is attached with absolute omniscience, that is, intelligence to every particle of existence. It is nothing for God to bring forth the leading of his word to us through the casting of lots. As long as it's not a game and treated lightly and done through those that are walking in a pure heart before God and living right before God. I'm not going to share much more than that in the introduction. Today I received a passage of scripture that is far more difficult to share from and would be more focused on ministering to the corporate body of Christ and to those that are believers as individuals. Although I will always accommodate those that have never been exposed to the knowledge of the truth. So I will first read this chapter, which is today, 2 Samuel chapter 21. Then there was a famine in the days of David three years, year after year, and David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is for Saul and for his bloody house, because he slew the Gibeonites. And the king called the Gibeonites and said unto them, Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And the children of Israel had sworn unto them, and Saul sought to slay them in his zeal to the children of Israel and Judah. Wherefore David said unto the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And wherewith shall I make the atonement, that ye may bless the inheritance of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said unto him, We will have no silver nor gold of Saul, nor of his house, neither for us shalt thou kill any man in Israel. And he said, What ye shall say, that will I do for you. And they answered the king, The man that consumed us and that devised against us that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the coasts of Israel, let seven men of his sons be delivered unto us, and we will hang them up unto the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord did choose. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. But the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Eha, whom she bare unto Saul. Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Michael, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up, for Adriel, the son of 
Barzillai, the Maholathite. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them in the hill before the Lord, and they fell all seven together, and were put to death in the days of harvest, in the first days in the beginning of the barley harvest. And Rispah the daughter of Ahai took sackcloth and spread it for her upon the rock, from the beginning of the harvest until the water dropped upon them out of heaven, and suffered neither the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. And it was told David that Rispah, the daughter of Ahai, the concubine of Saul, had what she had done. And David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh Gilead, which had stolen them from the street of Bethshane, where the Philistines had hanged them, when the Philistines had slain Saul and Gilboa. And he brought up from thence the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan his son. And they gathered the bones of them that were hanged. And the bones of Saul and Jonathan his son buried they in the country of Benjamin in Zelah in the sepulchre of Kish, his father. And they performed all that the king commanded. And after that, God was entreated for the land. Moreover, the Philistines had yet war again with Israel. And David went down and his servants with him and fought against the Philistines. And David waxed faint. And Ishbenobab, which was of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose spear weighed 300 shekels of brass and weight. He, being girded with a new sword, thought to have slain David. But Abishai, the son of Zeriah, succored him and smote the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swear unto him, saying, Thou shalt go no more out with us to battle, that thou quench not the light of Israel. And it came to pass after this that there was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sebeka, the Hushathite, slew Seth, which was of the sons of the giant. And there was again a battle at Gob with the Philistines, where Ilhanan, the son of Jaragorim, a Bethlehemite, slew the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the staff of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was yet a battle in Gath, where was a man of great stature that had on every hand six fingers and on every foot six toes, four and twenty in number. And he also was born to the giant. And when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, the brother of David, slew him. These four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Just going to have a little bit of water here. I made a summarization, summarization of this chapter, and I mentioned this. When there is the experience of judgment in some form of suffering or hardship in one's life as a believer, or corporately, it is important to inquire of God as to the grounds and source of such judgment upon one's life, whether that's corporately or individually. God will then reveal what to do to bring atonement to the situation in order to release the blessing of God in place of the curse of God's judgment upon oneself or upon them. I feel to lay some groundwork before discussing basically this thing which is the consequences of God's judgment upon others in ongoing generations or upon others in relation to those that have sinned, <clears throat> even though the ones that receive the judgment have not sinned. And I want to begin 
by giving an understanding of God as a God of judgment. I have heard teachers, even charismatic teachers, actually make the statement that God is not a God of judgment, even though it clearly says in Isaiah, actually states it, that God is a God of judgment. I don't have the verse here to give you on that, but you can look it up yourself in a concordance on the internet or whatever way you please, and you will find there is a verse that actually says God is a God of judgment. And that is self-evident if anyone is reading the Word of God, that it is very consistent from Genesis and throughout the whole Old Testament and also throughout the whole of the New Testament in the time after Christ. We see many examples of God's judgment upon people in the New Testament, upon bodies of believers and so on. Many are familiar with the story of Ananias and Sapphiras that lied before the whole congregation and gave the impression that they were sacrificing all to God when in fact they were lying to the Holy Spirit of God. And, they, and Ananias walks in and Peter says, you haven't lied to men. God has revealed to me that you've lied about this that you've given to the church and you've lied to the Holy Ghost. Therefore, the men are at the door ready to bury you, and he falls dead before his feet. Actually, God himself, by the Spirit of God, smote him to death. We have other examples in the New Testament. There was the congregation that ignored sin in their midst. There was a young man that was having sex with his mother. And they were coming into the congregation as if nothing had happened, ignoring the situation and continuing to even praise God in jubilation. Paul the Apostle says, you should have been in mourning over this terrible sin that has been committed in your midst and tells them to purge out the leaven of this sin. And that this person that committed this sin that they were to deliver to Satan for the destruction of his body so that this individual that committed this sin, if he repented, would at least be saved in his repentance. He emphasizes to purge out the leaven because there's an leavening influence. It's like a contagion, a contagion of a deadly virus we have at this time the Ebola virus that is spreading in Africa. We have other examples in the New Testament where the Lord warns the church, I believe of Pergamos, if I'm not mistaken, about Jezebel. And he says, concerning this woman Jezebel that is teaching God's servants to commit fornication and to offer things sacrificed unto idols, that he's giving her space to repent. But he says, I'm going to cast her into a bed and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation and that he will kill their ch her children with death, including her, that all the churches may know that I am he which searcheth the reins in the hearts. Another example is in the last chapter of 1 John, where it says that there is a sin that one can commit in the body of Christ that is unto death. And he encourages those that are aware of those that would commit such sin to not pray for their death, but to pray that God would spare them. But he says there's a sin that is a sin unto death, and there is other sins that are not sins unto death. But if there is repentance, there can be mercy. And there was mercy for this man that committed incest because there was great repentance in him. And in that church, the whole situation was turned around so that his life was spared and he was restored into unity in the body of Christ. I needn't mention the myriads of examples that there are in the Old Testament, such as Achan, when Israel was commanded to destroy 
I believe it was Nineveh. He, and they were not to take any gold or silver or anything in the process of destroying Nineveh. He secretly took gold and silver and hid it under the tent. And then when Israel went to the next battle, what happened? They were chased by their enemies and some of them were killed and they did not win that battle. And so Joshua inquires before God earnestly, God, what went wrong? And God reveals that there was one individual in the camp that committed this sin and violated the commandment of the Lord and coveted the things that were of this life. And that that had spread as a contagion of judgment to the whole congregation. We are living in the last days. And the more the Lord calls his people to come forth out of all impurity, that allows ground for God's judgment in their lives individually and corporately. The more we come out of those things and come into a deep unity of purity with God and one another, the more severe will be the judgment upon those who would dare allow themselves to appear holy in the congregation when in fact in their lives they are living an idolatrous life of sin. Now I want to go back to the very beginning with an understanding of idolatry and covetousness. The word of God is very clear that covetousness is idolatry. It is defined as such as in Corinthians. What is covetousness? It is a grasping on to some temporal thing of this world It could be in many forms. It's a grasping onto something to gratify or self-glorify oneself in independence from God. It is a state of being that is always grasping and can never be satisfied. And the more one grasps and pulls things into themselves that they think will satisfy them, the more desperate they find that emptiness becomes in their choices. They become more and more destructive in seeking to, to fill that void. It is, as I like to illustrate, like a black hole in outer space. Where did this covetousness, which is idolatry, originate? Well, I won't go to the very beginning and discuss in this case. Its origin is in the first rebellion, which is in Lucifer before God. And Lucifer influenced Adam and Eve to enter into the same basic principle of rebellion. And out of Adam and Eve came Cain, which bought into that principle in even a greater way. But it originally started with Satan. Now, there is a difference in the rebellion of Satan as opposed to man. For his rebellion was without temptation and was a direct rebellion against the stream of God's blessing that was flowing into his life and through his life. It was a direct defiance against the glory and blessing of God that didn't involve temptation. Whereas in the creation of man, temptations are indirect through the physical creation and not a direct defiance against the presence of the Spirit of God in blessing in our lives. Basically with Satan, who experienced the fullness of the glory of God, somehow there came a point where he believed that he could, the glory that he was receiving from God could be 
in independence of God so that he could rise up and be equal with God and even seek to rise above God. The fear of God is a choice to recognize God as ultimately trustworthy by recognizing what only can be ultimately trustworthy, which is the quality of the being of God, which is love. Which is love in an ultimate perfection that has two aspects. The first aspect is that the love of God, which is that quality that always chooses the highest lasting good over any more immediate choice, which would therefore be in some measure destructive. God's choice is always perfect onto the highest lasting good. It is a free choice, a totally free self-originating choice that is always under the highest lasting good and guards against what would be anything less. And as such, God's love has an absolute integrity of purity to be a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest that is contrary to this quality of love. This is the holiness of God or the defensive aspect of love. Only as such can love be the container of unlimited life and unlimited power without being corrupted by it and without corruption causing dissipation of that power and life in a direction that would bring greater and greater chaos. It is the integrity of this of God's love that brings judgment, the holiness of God. This defensive aspect of the love of God that one recognizes as ultimately trustworthy. It is not a mere intellectual assent. It is a choice to be open to who God is in reality and be in utter awe of who he is so that in our soul and spirit we are humbled before God to the place of total honesty. And that place of honesty also brings us to the place of even greater humility and vice versa. I'm not here to go in depth into describing the being of God, but it is out of the foundation of this holiness of God that can spring forth the expression of God's love in creation or in creativity that brings forth creation, a creativity that has not the slightest iota of corruption in it. And that is ultimately expressed in the fact that God would have such a great love that he could allow himself in creating a creation that is like himself in the sense that they are the source of their own action, they have their own free will, which allows the potential for them to make choices in rebellion against God, that even in that, God would have the moral capacity in himself to become a perfect atoning sacrifice, to take the judgment of the sins of creation upon himself those that repent and receive his perfect atoning sacrifice. Now, I just will only share that now for time. It is the failure to recognize who God is in the reality of his being, first in the purity of his love that requires judgment, and out of that in the mercy that he has, the power to... to assure mercy and forgiveness because he actually has such a perfection of love to become a perfect atoning sacrifice. Oh, I could get into all of the evidence for this and it's not here to get sidetracked on that. I'm laying just briefly a, a foundation. Now you have Adam and Eve. Eve chooses to take 
of the tree that God planted there that they were not to partake of. Through indirect temptation in the physical realm by Satan. And the result is that she made a choice at that moment to recognize God as less than ultimately trustworthy. She lost the fear of God. The fear of God is that choice from the heart that acknowledges God in his holiness as ultimately trustworthy, not only in his holiness, but in the mercy that springs out of his holiness as ultimately trustworthy. For it is in the power of God to assure mercy and forgiveness that means that creation can be assured destiny and purpose. And if God could not assure to his creation destiny and purpose, it would imply that he created a creation that is imperfect and that would not fulfill ultimate purpose or choice that is onto the highest good, which would imply that God is imperfect. But because God is ultimately perfect in love, he is ultimately trustworthy, and it is the choice to recognize God in the purity of his love, the integrity of his love, and out of that, in the mercy that he is able to provide in the assurance of forgiveness, that there is the recognition of God as ultimately trustworthy, that we can repent and receive forgiveness. Because God in himself has the moral capacity to take judgment upon himself. For since God does require judgment, and if he didn't, there would be the condoning of what is destructive that would allow God to no longer be ultimately trustworthy because he would be buying into corruption. And then we have Cain. Cain, I believe, was offended at the consequences of the integrity of God's love or the holiness of God that resulted in suffering in creation. The ground was cursed. And so Cain began to withdraw from God by perceiving God as an enigma, as someone that wasn't totally perceived as ultimately trustworthy. He saw that God was holy and demanding, but he lost sight out of his offense at the goodness of God. That it is in the holiness of God that is contained the capacity of God's goodness to be ever enlarging in creative expression that is ever growing in fulfillment and in God creating, expressing his love. And so Cain did not perceive the goodness of God. He perceived God as demanding. And so he had a self-deluding perception of God that was idolatrous. His God was demanding high standards but he did not perceive how ultimately pure his holiness was because he was offended at the curse. And so he developed an idolatrous image of God that, that he could only perceive required him to bring something of a self-effort before God in order to satisfy God. He did not see that he needed the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God, that it wasn't within himself to save himself, but began to perceive God in a way that formed an image that allowed him to be in a state of self-worship, a deceptive state of self-worship. And so it's very easy to see how polytheism, the belief in many gods, would evolve out of this idolatrous perception of God, because then the next thing one thinks is, well, there's this God, and he's powerful, but there must be other gods. Maybe they're just as powerful. I'll pray and ask and inquire if there is any other gods, and then some other God is revealed to someone, and the next thing you go, no, you have all of these different 
plethora of gods that develop way back even in the Egyptian empire in the very beginning. And we do see in archaeology and all uh, the different places where they've dug up mounds of layers and layers of cities, that the further down that one digs, the more they come to the belief in one God. The sooner in time or the higher up in the layers, the more you come to the belief in many gods and an inferior culture with inferior math. But the monotheistic belief in one God was superior with superior math and culture, and that's what they've discovered. Just going to take a brief drink of water. How does this relate to the passage that we're discussing here? Well, what I'm wanting to point out is the offense that people take at the suffering around them in individual lives that they see, at the suffering in their own life, and at the suffering in general that they observe, and they draw the conclusion that God must be an enigma like Cain, and they form a deceptive image of God which is idolatrous. That is either a God that does not, that is demanding and controlling and is not merciful and able to assure forgiveness, or a God that lacks the integrity of love and embraces all things, including those things that are contrary to the love of God, in a false and counterfeit unity with other beliefs of deception. King David also had the experience of, for a brief time, being frightened at the holiness of God. Many of us as believers are familiar with the account, the historical account in Chronicles, of the priests wanting to take the ark back, I believe, to Shiloh. I forget if it's Shiloh or Bethel, but... They put it on a cart when they were supposed to carry it. The reason for carrying it was so that it was properly and carefully handled with great reverence and respect. When you really love someone, you treat them in a precious way. You don't treat them as common. You treat them with reverence and respect. And because it was on the cart, it almost at one point slid off, and one of the priests put his hand forward to stabilize the ark. And the anger of the Lord broke forth on that priest, and he was killed. And King David, it says, was afraid of God and caused the ark to go into the house of Obadidim. But, and was afraid to bring the ark back to Bethel, which represented the very presence of God in a special way in a special location for the children of Israel to corporately gather around. But then David heard that the house of Obadidim experienced incredible blessings because the ark was in his house. And so he came back and he began to realize that God is good, that he's just so great in his holiness, in the awe of his holiness. But he began to recognize the goodness that we could trust God, that God was ultimately trustworthy. He began to have a greater perception of God that was right, a perception that is a greater fear of God. He grew into a greater fear of God. It says that the early church grew in the fear of God. Many of us as believers, when we experience things happening in our lives that seem to indicate that God is against us, can become offended like Cain or frightened like King David. When the children of Israel received the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, the trumpet was so piercing and so awesome and the commandments were so hard that they shrunk back and could not stand to hear the piercing words of the spirit of the trumpet of God's word. 
that were piercing to the core of their being. And so they shrunk back at the holiness of God. But the word of God commands us to not do that, but at the same time to have this utter awe and reverence of who God is. And so in the context of understanding the reverence and the utter awe of God, it commands us to come boldly to the throne of grace in the time of need. So here King David in this chapter experienced a judgment coming upon the land. And he inquired of God. He did not rebel and become offended that God was allowing these things or become mystified and begin to perceive God as some enigma. He asked of God because he knew that God was righteous and just in all of his judgments towards those that love him. And God revealed to him the source of God's judgment upon the land. And so David made atonement for the wrong of King Saul, that it affected the land in this way. We are also very familiar with the account in regards to King David of the time when as a nation, Satan moved King David to count the number of the children of Israel. And it says there basically that God allowed Satan to move David to count the children of Israel so that he would bring judgment upon them as a nation. Why would it happen this way? Israel at that time was in great prosperity and had conquered their enemies and was filled with thankfulness and joy and was beginning to become at ease. But in the ease, they were becoming proud proud of their military might and probably flaunting themselves at the enemies that they had conquered instead of recognizing that God was the one that delivered them. And so because of the pride that God perceived in the nation of the children of Israel, his anger was kindled against Israel as a nation and so he decided to bring judgment upon the nation through causing King David to be strongly tempted to do something that would be against the will of God, which was to number the children of Israel so David could say, look at how powerful my armies are. Instead of giving glory to God and recognizing God as the source of his deliverance as a nation over the enemies of the Lord. And so King David is moved to number the children of Israel. Even with his right-hand man saying, you shouldn't do this, this is not what would please God. And we know the result was that God bring severe judgment upon the children of Israel with a severe pestilence that was killing thousands and thousands of them. And King David cried out to God, and said, take my life. What did these innocent people do? Why should they be judged for my sin? But the big picture was that God saw the sin that was in their hearts, that came out of their ease. Says in Ezekiel that the sin of Sodom was pride, abundance of bread, and idleness which is exactly the three things in our modern world that are preeminent in, the church, pre preeminent in the church and in society, that are grounds for God's judgment. Many people are idle as Christians. The word of God commands us to redeem the time for the days are evil. What are we doing spending all kinds of times in things that have no meaning or purpose, whether they're games or sports or pleasures or gods of amusement, instead of having a life of prayer and fellowship with God. This gives grounds for the judgment of God to eventually come upon a nation 
upon a corporate body of believers and upon people's lives individually that are really just living onto themselves and seeking to find fulfillment in the mere things of this world that can be used as bait to manipulate and control their lives when they become focused on those things instead of entering in to a place where they cast those things off out of a hunger to know God. It is the feeding of those things that consumes one's time and energy that quenches thirst and hunger for God so that we fail to seek God and to enter into a relationship of faith with God that allows us to triumph and victory over those things that would plague our lives and those enemies that would be used against us to seek to bring disrepute upon the glory of God. And in the case with King David, he cried out to God with all his heart, offering a sacrifice that cost him much. And the judgment was stayed because he humbled himself. And that's what God was seeking, is that in his ease, the pride that had crept into his heart would be broken out of recognizing who God is in the perfection of his holiness. That brings one to the place of utter awe and humility where one's heart is genuinely circumcised. And out of that, is birthed a deep and loving relationship with God. Likewise, God did the same with the children of Israel. He allowed this to come in order to bring them to the place where they would turn with all their heart to God and repent of the idols that they had started to feed into their lives that were were found in the root of pride and ease, and indifference, and probably manifested themselves in many forms. A focus that took them away from a relationship with God. In all of these situations, we see that it is very clear that there is a principle, that there is consequences to sin that reverberates out and reverberates down through the generations. We have a clear understanding that there was consequences over the sin of Adam and Eve that reverberated throughout all of mankind that were brought forth through them for all of us, as it were, existed in the first man, Adam and Eve. And those consequences reverberated out In the ongoing generations, they were the consequences of violating the holiness of God or the integrity of God's love that requires judgment. Because God is a consuming fire of love that will not tolerate sin. He is jealous for us to know our destiny in him, to know a deep relationship with him. And that it is not robbed and we know that in Romans chapter 5 it discusses Christ and we understand that God who is fully expressed in his one and only expression into the creation realm in order to govern in the realm of his creation it is in his son which is the full expression of God into the time and space realm. The word son means expression. It's very clear in Hebrews 1.3 that Jesus Christ is the full expression of God, the Father, that governs beyond the time and space realm and sees the end from the beginning and is the originator of all things. And so Christ was tempted in all points as we are, and yet without sin. And as such, as it were, took the first man, Adam, that sinned and carried him, as it were, to the cross and nailed him to the cross so that that first man, Adam, that reverberated in our nature with the consequences of judgment through lineage that came out of Adam and to all the human race could be replaced with the second Adam, which is Jesus 
Christ that conquered the first man, Adam. Through his obedience, he proved himself to be a perfect atoning sacrifice that could absorb the judgment of sin upon himself. Yes, God himself, who governs in the time and space realm in the expression of himself, came and humbled himself in Jesus Christ, his one and only expression, and suffered more than you, a mere creature, and humbled himself more than you, a mere creature, so that you could repent and receive forgiveness of sins and cleansing of sin, of all sin, and be cleansed white as snow as it were through his blood, the blood of God that was shed upon the cross. And he rose from the dead and he tasted death for every man so that if we repent, we can be reconciled to God and come into a deep love relationship with him. There is another example of the reverberation of sin from one individual that spreads out to others. But there's also the example in this of something even greater that, in a sense, is similar in principle to the first and second Adam that I was just talking about, that can break generational curses or judgments that come from God. And I want to explain this. If you read the book of Ruth, it is the genuine account of Ruth. And I'm not going to go into explain the whole story, except that Naomi left the land of Israel because there was a great famine and she thought she'd go to Moab where there's more of a chance to have food. So she goes with her husband and her two sons and then her husband dies of some disease and her two sons die of some disease. But she got to know a Moabitess by the name of Ruth, which became a great friend. But now they had no husband and she had no sons. And so she decides to go back to the land of Israel but Ruth got to know her God. And when Ruth and when Naomi said that she was going back to Israel, Ruth said something that was very significant. It's possible, I suppose, I could just turn to that verse and read it to you. So I'll just briefly go right now to Ruth, the book of Ruth. And I believe I'll find it probably in the first chapter. And this is... Uh, the verse that I want you to read. In verse 16 of chapter 1, she's telling them, go back to Moab, go back to your families, go back to your gods. That's what she's telling Ruth and the other lady that was with her that was a Moabitess. And it says in verse 16, and Ruth said, entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee for whether thou goest, I will go, and whether thou lodgest, I will lodge, and thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. And when she saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her, then she left speaking unto her. Now, Ruth was a Moabitess, and she came to a point where she really knew the God of Israel and knew a relationship with the one true God and forsook her idols and her family and all to go back with Ruth to Israel. Now, it clearly says in another verse in the Old Testament that anyone that is a Moabitess, you're not to wish any or to seek any of their, their prosperity or their blessing. It says that a Moabitess is not allowed to be in the temple of God's house worshiping with the children of Israel for 10 generations. So here is Ruth a Moabitess. And how is it that she ends up going back to Israel and Boaz, a very wealthy and godly man, seeks her prosperity and actually marries her. And she becomes the seed through which King David is born, and through which Christ the Messiah comes when she's a Moabitess. This is, would seem to be a total violation 
of the law that said a Moabitess was not to be allowed into the house of the Lord for ten generations and not to be sought in any way you were to seek their prosperity and blessing. What made the difference? What broke this curse in Ruth? It was that she came to a place of total consecration in her love to God, of total abandonment of the idols of her past and of the present of surrounding her, even to leave her sister that she knew very well that lived with Ruth, that went back to be with the gods and the parents and the relationships. Because she had a total conversion, a total transformation in her life of love towards God, it broke the grounds for that curse. It is the grounds that is the issue. In Proverbs it says, the curse causeless shall not come. What breaks the curse so that it is causeless is a deep conversion to Christ that involves total abandonment of all the things in one's life that are idolatrous, that are covetous. And the more there is the ceasing of that grasping old nature in one's being, the more there is no longer the grounds for there to be the effects of judgmental curses from previous generations upon one's life. It says in Galatians that the curse was broken. It was broken. I could go to Galatians right now and look that up about the breaking of the curse. But it simply says this. It says... Maybe I will. I'll just go to Galatians. Turn to it in the Word of God right now. The book of Galatians. Just briefly to read this verse. I'll find the chapter rather quickly. I'm not sure which chapter it is. It's probably, probably in chapter 2. Maybe it's possibly in chapter 3. I, I'm just looking quickly here to get the right chapter. It basically says this. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. I don't know where the exact verse is and it's not worth just trying to find the exact verse. I'll just continue back with 1 Samuel chapter 21. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. Why then are there many believers that have so many things happening in their lives that are evident of God's judgment of suffering and trials? How does that fit in with the verses in the New Testament that say, that if we are truly going to be his son or his daughter, we will experience chastisement. And if we don't experience God dealing with us through trials to purify us, then we're not even his sons or daughters, it says in Hebrews. Even in the Old Testament, it says, King David says this, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth them from them all. So there's a difference between God allowing trials in our life to bring us closer to him and judgmental curses. They're evidently not of God and they do not have God's blessing in them. And there's the need to discern between both of these things. It says, yea, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It is one thing to experience 
circumstances that are trying and difficult through which we learn to trust God and have breakthrough. And it's another thing to experience things that are obviously bringing great, terrible consequences where people are dying, where people are experiencing uh, things that limit them from serving God and that hinder their lives from being used and being able to be used by God. In these situations, one needs to come to a place where they recognize what are they holding on to, being open to what God reveals would be the ground of such a curse. I have seen, for example, many people that claim that they have forgiven others, but it's only been something that they've convinced themselves of in their mind. And in their heart, it's another issue. In their heart, they're still holding something against someone. This can be in the form of adultery, where they refuse to forgive their partner, they divorce their partner with unforgiveness in their heart. Is God speaking to certain ones to really search their heart as to the motives for why they divorced their husband or their wife? Is it not possible that they could have shown the love of Christ to them that would have won them over? I'll never forget the lady that told me of how she was deciding to divorce her husband and making steps to do it, and God challenged her to go to him and to wash his feet with the towel in the bathroom, and she kept on refusing and finally gave in and went to him and washed his feet. And he said, no, no, don't do it. And then he broke down in tears, and she broke down in tears. And they were reconciled, and their marriage has been together for 25 years since, at the time that I talked to her re recently and about, I don't know, 10 months ago. We need to know that if we've really seen how great the mercy of God is to us, if we've recognized who God is and his mercy to us personally, which is a perception of the love of God that comes out of that mercy, how is it that we could not show mercy to others? I saw the story yesterday on the 700 Club that moved me to tears of a woman who had two precious twin daughters. I believe she had also another daughter. And these two daughters were killed by a drunk driver in a car accident. Her life was devastated. I won't go into the process that she went through, but she came to the point where in the trial, she stood up, even though she'd be misunderstood, to not really love her family and say to this man, I forgive you. This man was so moved by what she said that he was broken to tears for what he had done and was genuinely converted to Christ. She came to a point where she had a genuine love for this man and visited him in prison and actually intervened so that he would not get a long sentence. Instead of 22 years, it became 11. And this man became a committed follower of Christ, the very one that killed her two daughters, and she loves him to this day and embraces him. If that isn't a testimony of the grace of God and of his love, what is? That broke the grounds of any unforgiveness that would be grounds for curse and judgment upon her life and upon his life. She had such a love for God and an appreciation of God's love and mercy and forgiveness in her life that overflowed with the grace to forgive what would be impossible in the natural. I'm sure she didn't find it easy to make such a choice, but she recognized God's mercy towards her and love towards her. And it broke the grounds for the curse. The curse causeless shall not come. 
The other passage that I didn't tell you I got today, besides 2 Samuel 21, because I wondered how am I going to get anything out of this, was 2 Chronicles chapter 33, which describes the very wicked king of Israel that was more wicked than the heathen around them and killed all kinds of righteous people and tortured them and worshipped idols. And he's finally, God's judgment comes upon him and he's captured by the king of Syria and thrown into prison and tortured. And he humbles himself before God and repents. And then it says he knew that the Lord was God. He was genuinely converted. And he came back a changed man that was totally converted by the power of God. The same one that had brought such terrible judgments upon the nation of Israel had a complete turnaround and removed all the idols out of the land. Was there consequences for what he had done that even reverberated down to other, others? Yes. There's always consequences to sin, but the curse can be broken. And my encouragement to you is to look at the seed of idolatry spelled I-O-D-O-L, you know, idols, and adultery, which are really basically one and the same. It is adultery with loving the things of the world that brings the hardness in one's heart to bring forth beliefs and rationalizations that justify one's adultery. And convince them even that they've forgiven their partner when they have not truly because there's no genuine love in their heart towards their partner. And so I've heard people say, well, you can't trust them as a justification for continuing to hold offense towards someone. Christ did not say not to trust people. He said that when your brother sins, you are to forgive him, even if it's 70 times 7. Do you not believe that a person can genuinely repent so that they can be trusted? When there's conversion, they're changed, and there is trust. The question is whether we are willing to initiate mercy towards an individual that will cause them to respond with that genuine conversion like this man I told you about that was converted that killed the two daughters. God is calling us as his people to repent of the adultery of loving the world that has caused us to have adultery in marriages that have broken up because of the adultery we have had against God in worshiping the gods of amusement and idleness and the many other things and the pleasures of this life rather than focusing and making our life focused on relationship with God where there's much prayer and seeking of God in our lives, where we become addicted to a love relationship of fellowship with God and with one another that breaks this hardness in the heart of loving the world, this adultery with the world that springs forth in adultery with our husbands and wives and in relationships where there's division and hurt instead of unity in the body of Christ. In order to break the judgments that reverberate down from maybe the sins of our parents or whatever, there needs to be a deep turning in the heart of repentance that inquires like King David as to what the cause is for these things in our lives to keep repeating over and over. And when the root is revealed, we can repent of it. When we see the ugliness of it for what it is, we can repent of it. People that have addictions, they're not willing to ask God to take the desire away. They're deceiving themselves as long as they, th if they think they're repenting and are not willing to pray the prayer that gets at the root. And when we get to the very root of the cause with true repentance and a true circumcision in our heart, then we can place the blood of Christ between ourselves and those judgments from previous generations, whether it's the one from Adam coming all the way down or from our recent ancestors that have been in rebellion against God, that will break the cycle of those 
judgmental curses and bring us into a wholesome relationship with God. It is not good when people have to keep on going forward, as I have seen time and time again in meetings, saying, please pray that God will break the generational curse. And the next week they're doing the same thing, or the next month. There's something wrong with that picture. There should be a repentance that breaks such judgments upon one's life so that there's not a continual going up and asking for such things from others. Christ said, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. It's the body of Christ. Will we repent of those things that are not from God, where we are seeking to control the people under us, to stay in a comfortable zone of spiritual fellowship with one another and with God that is really limiting God. Oh, I could go in and talk about this. There's not time. But I can say this just briefly. God is calling his people in this last hour to start their meetings of assembly around him so that they are truly focused and being gathered around him. So that there's utter awe and sensitivity to whose presence they are in not to who's next to you and to your leader or where you are following those around you instead of your relationship with God being prominent. Where you're being who you really are before God and before one another with integrity out of the fear of God. And when congregations begin to start their meetings on their faces before God and just be in awe of who he is and be in a place of awe and humility and repentance out of that great humility will rise up the presence of God in them with revelation, with liberty, with prophetic expression, with expressions of new songs and testimonies. And you will be able then to have God's presence bring a unity among yourselves that will allow him to inhabit your corporate assembly with power and authority that will conquer your community, that will conquer your city and your nation and tear down the walls of division. God bless you for listening to this message. It's already been well over an hour, so I will just continue with the following message in the coming days. God bless you for listening to this. May you be open to what is being shared here so that you might enter into it and enter into the fullness of destiny in your life instead of being robbed for the purpose for which you were created. God bless you all.